0: Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Giulietta Gabbiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation and the promise for a comfortable life, but what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast, episode 14. Let hope be the contagion and not COVID-19. This is a Q&A with Dr. Julieta Gabbiola, and that's me, on COVID-19 updates. For my listeners, my apologies for the delay of this episode. It's mainly due to a little bit longer recovery from COVID-19. Today, I would like to welcome Nicole, who will ask questions that we gathered from our website, Medicine for Good podcast. Nicole Samignani is an aspiring medical student. And has worked with me at Stanford Hospital as our patient flow coordinator and also has been an invaluable intern with our nonprofit organization, ABCs for Global Health. She is very passionate in contributing to public health or population health. She joined our team in the Philippines two years ago where she not only worked on hands-on healthcare work in the community, but also was inspiring to the students she mentored. She is still
1: mentoring students in the United States. Welcome, Nicole. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be on your podcast today, Dr. Gabiola, and to be able to get some questions answered and have this really important conversation around COVID. I wanted to start with, Touching on your experience receiving questions from a bunch of strangers with free medical advice. I know personally I have called and messaged you several times when I wanted some medical advice. And I'm sure you've had the same experience with friends, neighbors, and colleagues when you go to the grocery store and the shopping mall. So, like you said, I have a few questions for us to go over. And the first Question is from a patient. She explained that she was she's pregnant, super excited and a little worried about COVID and the vaccine. She asked, "What are the vaccine risks associated with my pregnancy and my baby? My OB appointment is only 8 weeks from now."
0: Oh my goodness, I love good news nowadays. I am sure my excitement on your pregnancy is shared by many of our listeners. Congratulations. I will answer your questions shortly after this introduction on COVID-19. Information from this podcast is derived from reading the literature, from clinical trials, press releases, talking to experts in the field, thought leaders, thinkers, clinicians, and you, the public. Without a doubt, 2020 was a challenging year. It still is for 2021. We are certainly not out of the woods yet. There is so much to learn, so much to know, and so much to experience with COVID-19. To those of us who had asymptomatic disease or mild disease, we are very fortunate. To some who had severe diseases hospitalized, like me, and had protracted course in the ICU, it's just a horrible experience. Some are not that fortunate, and they may even die from their disease. Recovery is complete for most people, but some may suffer from lingering symptoms of cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, and brain fog, the so-called long haulers. So what are we gleaning from a year of ripping changes across the globe? At the start of the pandemic, while the world watched China deal with the surge, we were somewhat in denial that it will not reach our respective countries. The spread of the pandemic globally, plus in many countries like the U.S., for example, where poor governance, misinformation, and divisiveness exerted the multiplier effect, leading to an even more tragic impact of the pandemic. This novel virus requires not only novel scientific solutions for its main menu, but a community effort with compassion, compassion, and humanity as major ingredients. Though COVID-19 is mild in about 80% of people, about 15 to 20% succumb to more severe symptoms, which may lead to hospitalization, ICU admissions, intubation in about 5% of cases, and even death. People who have experienced mild disease regard the infection just like a simple cold and are quite annoyed that this virus has taken over our lives. People who have severe disease or have lost loved ones respect the impact and the burden of the disease and hopefully will send the message to others on how horrible this disease can be and that all preventive measures such as masking, physical distancing, hand-washing, avoiding crowds, gatherings, and travel for now. We should not be paralyzed by fear of this virus. Life has to continue with caution and optimism until we could control the spread of the virus through herd immunity or until we find a cure or effective treatment. With 110 million reported cases globally and about 2.5 million deaths, COVID-19 is becoming the mother of all pandemics this century. The consequences are staggering from every facet, social, educational, economic, psychological, and physical health. The United States tops the world in reported cases of about 28 million, accounting for 20 to 25 percent of the global infection rates with half a million deaths. California alone, where we are, there are about 3.5 million cases and almost 49 percent deaths. Those numbers are expected to go up, especially with variants emerging. The last two to three weeks, though, are very, very encouraging. The rise of cases and the deaths have slowed down, giving us more hope. Never before had the disease been so politicized. With better leadership and decision now being made for the common good, we hope to start reversing the tide of COVID infections and deaths. This is the time for renewed hope, for respect to science and data, and for commitment to community, unity, compassion, and humanity. So people ask, what should give us hope? Well, the news like babies being born, like your pregnancy from one of our callers, the unprecedented record speed of vaccine development from efficacy and safety trials to the emergency usage. And now, similar record speed of vaccination of people. In the U.S. alone, about 70 million vaccines have been distributed and about 56 million administered. More than 1.5 million doses administered per day. This is a cause for celebration. In the U.K., there were 16 million distributed, Canada 1.3 million. In the U.S. alone, eight vaccines have received federal funding through Operation Warp Speed with contract to about 600 million doses. Other countries like the UK, Canada, China, Russia have vaccines with similar efficacies. More Hoping news, there's increasing acceptance of the vaccine, encouraging trends of reduction in rates of infection from the average of 250,000 cases per day in mid-January to now below 80,000 per day, and decreased hospitalization from the 130,000 to less than 70,000, and now decreased deaths as well to below 2,000 mark. Then there is also this humane governance and cohesive leadership. There's this respect back to science and data with scientific leaders on the ball now. There's also better communication and dissemination of clear and honest information with more press releases, town hall meetings, more listening from our leaders. There's also a decrease in incidence of influenza and other acute viral infections and also well-resourced countries helping struggling countries with this nicely integrated COVAX planning and sharing. And historically, pandemics and epidemics always get into control. Though variants or mutations are not surprising with any virus, we have shown thus far that vaccines are effective against these variants, though with reduced efficacy. Pharmaceutical companies, also, and biotech companies continue to explore tailoring the vaccine development against the variants. Although vaccines are critical to control COVID infections and spread and hopefully get society reopened again, public health measures like hand washing, masking, and physical distancing have been shown to be very, very effective in preventing the spread of the infection. These measures have been shown to control infections and death in many countries like Thailand, South Korea, Japan, and New Zealand, to name a few. Stopping the pandemic, Will require a multifaceted approach such as public health measures, vaccines, exploration for more effective treatment and humanity, like, for example, helping each other and helping other nations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's so much to look forward to when it's so important that we maintain hope and keep a positive outlook, at least for the next few months. I know it'll still be difficult, but. I'm glad you highlighted all those things to look forward to. And also to continue that conversation, we need to be able to continue talking, especially with kids, because they may not understand everything that's going on. And that leads me into the next question that actually came in from a father. He said, I wear my mask religiously and sometimes my shield and gloves when going out. I still see people not wearing masks in public and it annoys the heck out of me. Seeing this at times makes me want to stop caring as I see some people don't seem to care at all. My daughter asked me, why do you want me to wear a mask when I always see people on TV in groups not wearing masks? How should I respond to my daughter?
0: Oh, my goodness. Thank you for that question. And thank you for listening to your daughter. Actually, during COVID-19, appropriate messaging and listening are key. So... My suggestion is I will explain in plain language why masks and other barriers are important in controlling the spread of the virus. I'm unsure what your daughter's age is, but I will probably go down to their appropriate level. So I would probably show myself talking or speaking or coughing and see what comes out from my mouth and show then with the mask how this uh, spreading out of, what comes out from your mouth when you cough or sneeze can be prevented. So I will show the purpose of the barrier. And then I might even kind of like integrate stories, like for example, what they see, like stories of doctors and nurses in the operating room with masks on to prevent transmitting to the patients and prevent transmission of infected microorganism to the wound or the surgical field. Or maybe I will in a great experience. Like for example, think about the experiences that you have when you visited grandma and you try to protect grandma if one of the kids are sick. So you have them wear a mask or you wear a mask to protect your grandma if they are immune suppressed or if you are sick. So I would do those. I will also emphasize that in COVID-19, people may be asymptomatic or no symptoms, but they harbor the virus in their nose and throat. And that's about, in reported cases, about 20 to 40% in observational studies. I even recall from my own experience, when I was in the Kaiser emergency room as an attending physician, I was assigned to the emergency night clinic where it's predominantly pediatric cases with acute viral and bacterial infections. I recall I was always sick after that tour of duty. And then I started wearing masks. And then I noticed that I wasn't getting sick after my tour of duty. And also there are reported cases, for example, anecdotal reports like a study done in Chicago and a hair salon place and all the clients were required to wear masks and two hairdressers actually had active COVID infection that they, they didn't know initially. And out of that 300 people in the salon, nobody had infection. I would do that in terms of explanation, and I will integrate all your stories that you could think of. So that makes it relate more with your daughter. And then in terms of other leaders who are not masking, and we see that on the news, we see our leaders and politicians not wearing masks, I would say, that although we can regulate our own behavior and responses, it is difficult to really impose it to other people or it is difficult to change other people's behavior. I suppose we could remind people of the importance of the mask and distancing when we have that opportunity to do so, but we really cannot force them. So regarding the leaders who failed to be good role models, I would just tell my daughter for example, that we just hope that leaders in the future will examine themselves and act for the common good. I hope that answers your question. I really appreciate your question.
1: Yeah, and I'll just add on to that question. The same daughter also told her father my teacher said I'm better off outdoor rather than indoor. Can you explain a little bit why that is? Sure, sure.
0: Yeah. So, so there's an interaction of how much virus you spread, and it depends upon how severe your illness is. So the more severe your illness is, the more you spread out virus. And it also depends on how big your space is if you are indoor and if you're outdoor. So for example, outdoor, ventilation is better and the air current will actually dilute any infected material out there that's exhaled from people who are infected. And also the virus is so sensitive to UV and change in humidity. So masking outdoor, for example, if it's windy or stuff, you may not have to wear a mask, but when you're approaching people, you may be able to get away with just a plain cloth mask. Indoor, however... It depends. If someone is singing, yelling, or sneezing, bacteria and virus can transmit to even much more distance than six feet. So it depends also on how big the space and how much ventilation you have. For example, in an aircraft, although they said that they upgraded their filtering, you could basically contract the virus because it's in an enclosed space and everyone is breathing the same air. In a larger space where circulation is much better, there's lesser risk for spreading it. So I would say masking and double masking is actually important to consider where you are, the space you are, whether you're indoor or outdoor. So in terms of your children asking, it might be really nice to have children to be the emissary in delivering this public health message because older people may get embarrassed if younger people or children have to remind them to wear a mask. So children out there continue convincing the older generation to keep, using masks. Yeah, and also people say, well, I basically wear masks mask and then hope for vaccines and treatment. But I think those preventive public health measures are cheap and they don't give you side effects and this should not be replaced by vaccines and treatment. Because in many countries where these public health measures are strictly followed, the infection rates are and deaths are much, much lower.
1: Right. So in regards to the vaccine and distancing, I feel like there's a lot of misconception that you receive a vaccine and everything is going to go back to normal, right? What is normal now? So I'm curious as to what your recommendations are regarding that topic. Should people still wear a mask and practice social distancing even after receiving the vaccine?
0: That's a great question, actually. And many people ask that because everyone is being fatigued in wearing masking and avoiding friends and family and stuff like that. So there's this COVID-19 fatigue in terms of following public health measures. But I would, I would still recommend wearing masks due to the following reasons. It takes several weeks after the vaccine to mount a response. After the first dose, you get a partial response. And it's not after the second vaccine that you may get 95 to 100 percent response. And that response is against severe disease, which is mainly the most important outcome anyway that we want to strive for. But the vaccines are only like 75 to 95 percent effective against mild disease. So it's not a complete protection. Like, for example, for the measles vaccines, which started sometime in 1963, the disease was not eliminated until year 2000. So most vaccines are most effective against severe disease, but not against milder form of disease or against asymptomatic disease. And then another aspect of that, we do not know if the vaccinated ones who have no symptoms like the asymptomatic ones, but still have the virus in their nose and throat that they cannot transmit the virus. We think that the virus may prevent transmission too, but studies are needed to determine this. So we still need to protect people who have not been vaccinated or who cannot be vaccinated, like a lot of the people who are immune compromised, that they cannot receive the vaccines yet. Until it takes us to the herd immunity threshold, for example, which may take another six months. And then this future variant, I'm not really sure whether they may escape vaccine efficacy. The good news, though, is the mRNA vaccines may still cover the new variants, although there's reduction of neutralizing antibody levels. But the immunity goes beyond just antibody production, though. And we'll talk about the B cell and T cell response. And T cell, which is the cell-mediated immunity, may be the main driver for longer-lasting immunity. These are all our memory cells, killer cells, and helper cells. The studies to test the effectiveness of the vaccines on the trials only factor in basically the production of antibodies.
1: Right. And earlier you did touch on double masking and I have seen people go out with double masks on. So do you think that it is effective that it does provide a greater protection when you wear tube masks? Yes, yes.
0: So initially when we were short of masks, I know there was mixed messaging there. People were not advised to wear masks because they were in short supply. Now we have more supply and it's, it's more consistent. So now double masking may be advised in cases, like, for example, the emergence of this new variants. And also with double masking, it may improve the fit in your face because you see other people there with the mask, like flailing open and incorrectly placed and incorrectly fitting their face. So the double masking may improve the fit and it does improve the filtering capacity. As long as it doesn't obstruct your vision, it may be recommended if you are in a closed space, if you're in front of an infected looking person, or if you are in front of a person who is immune compromised to protect them. So there are various ways. N95, for example, is good. I wear my N95 when I travel in a closed space, like, for example, in an airplane or when I see patients. And even with N95, I still put a surgical mask underneath it because I seem to be allergic to the N95 component, the N95. So people can wear N95, which are really reserved for healthcare practitioners. So you could wear a surgical mask, for example, and a cloth mask on top of it. And some people have this knot and tuck. I don't know how it's done. They, they knot it and they tuck it in so it, it's a better fit on their face. Or you may wear also that, as I mentioned, the cloth mask now, they have filter inside it so you could buy those. I'm not sure how much they cost. So depending on whether you're outdoor or indoor, depending on the distance to your conversant, or depending upon the ventilation or the person in front of you, their susceptibility to infection and their risk for infection.
1: Right. That's great to know. And also great for you to protect yourself and to protect other people. I wanted to return to the pregnancy topic. I don't know about you, but it seems like there's a huge baby boom over this quarantine year. I know a lot of people in my circle that have become pregnant. So we do have a question from one of our listeners. She just found out that she's pregnant and she's six weeks pregnant and wondering if she should take the vaccine. She wants to know what the risks associated and the direct risk to her baby in regards to her pregnancy and breastfeeding as well, could you just speak a little bit on the risks and benefits of the vaccine and having covid on the mother or the fetus.
0: Yeah, that's a very good question and I didn't want you to think that I forgot about your question. I just addressed the public health measures because I felt that that's very important. And your Absolutely. pregnancy sure. and your pregnancy is as important as well. So congratulations. So what is the cause of concern? I know the pregnant women were not allowed on the trials because they're usually excluded in most trials, clinical trials. I would recommend that pregnant women will get the vaccine for several reasons that I would elucidate. So right now, pregnant women are allowed access to COVID-19 vaccines and are actually encouraged to get the COVID vaccine. And this is supported by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and also by the Society of Fetal and Maternal Medicine. So observational data, for example, in an analysis of 409, about 410 thousand women, it has been shown that pregnant women compared to the non pregnant are at a higher risk of severe illness. So hospitalization and ICU admission, if they contracted COVID, has been like three times that of non pregnant women. And the intubation is about close to 2.9 times. And death is unfortunately also high 1.7 times. On top of that, there's increased risk of stillbirth and premature birth as well, noted on those studies. The mRNA vaccines have been shown to be very safe in pregnant women. They don't alter your genetic material. They don't go into your nucleus and they are degraded easily and do not affect your placenta and your baby. They do not contain a live virus and cannot possibly give anyone COVID-19 infection. And they're less likely to pose any specific risk for pregnant women. So there had been more than 10,000 pregnant women on the true real data that we have when we rolled down the vaccine. And so far, there were no red flags and no significant adverse effects. So vaccines like Influenza had been in use since the 1960s on pregnant women and vaccines like pertussis, tetanus, diphtheria had also been given to pregnant women for a long time now and had been generally safe. And they may even offer protection to infants as well. So I would suggest this. The risk and benefit of vaccines and the risk of infection in pregnant women must be weighed on. And also a joint discussion with your OB or PCP will be very helpful and highly encouraged. Pregnant women, though, who are in the front lines, like healthcare workers and essential workers, are really encouraged to get it much earlier. And then, how about during lactation or breastfeeding? As a pregnancy, there is not much data regarding transfer to the baby, though. It is likely that the baby will benefit from the antibody and also may just digest the milk plus the antibody as we collect more data though we would know more so stay tuned
1: yeah and then what would you recommend they do after delivery also like the danger of being in the hospital during your delivery and i know a lot of new parents had to be separated during delivery over the last quarantine so what are your recommendations there
0: Well, during delivery, yes, there are a lot more strict criteria on pregnant women because of their risk. So if after delivery, if mom is asymptomatic with COVID, meaning no symptoms, they can breastfeed at delivery, but we're still learning. If and if symptomatic with COVID, they will be worked up and the baby also will be swabbed and cord blood will be obtained and discussion with the pediatrician at that time will be advised. Pregnant women should continue to practice strict guidelines like hand washing. And also should restrict, if they have kids in the house, should restrict their kids from multiple exposures outside the household. So that would also help protect pregnant women at their homes.
1: Yeah. And I wanted to touch a little bit more on a a personal topic for you, maybe. You know, everyone that listens, we know that you came down with severe COVID after your vaccination, so, I want to hear a little bit more about your experience with that.
0: Well, my experience is not a great one for sure. <laughs> Doctors okay. are the worst patients. We think we know everything. But when it comes to deciding for ourselves, we may not be the best doctors for ourselves. So when I was experiencing COVID, initially, I was just having cough and fatigue and muscle pain. So I took it for granted. And then over the, the next four to five days, I continuously got worse. And contrary to what my families and friends and colleagues had recommended when I was getting sicker, they wanted me to check into the hospital. I actually stayed home a lot longer for my own safety. If my colleagues did not send 911 because they were increasingly worried, because when they talked to me, I, I could not breathe. If they did not send 911, I honestly believe that that afternoon, I probably would have stopped breathing and be intubated and be in the ice. So indeed, indeed, now I believe in the wisdom of others. Like my sister, who begged me to check into the hospital the day prior, she can tell that I was getting sicker each time she talked to me. She can tell that I was struggling to breathe. She said, I know you keep telling me that there's no treatment. It's a waste of resources to go into the hospital. I get that. but." She said, in the hospital, someone can monitor and help you right away. At home, you're by yourself and no one can get close to you. And no one knows when you are going downhill. So that's the challenge with this virus. Everyone avoids you because they are at risk and you don't want to expose them as well. So... I know in the hospital you could get IV, the, you could get O2, and they could rapidly respond if you're going downhill. And certainly the IV, the oxygen, in Decadron, and the Decadron, which is the steroid, actually turned me around and gave me a jump start.
1: So that was my experience in the hospital with COVID. Yeah, unfortunately, you had to experience that. That's not really something we want to have. And I know that a lot of family members have had trouble over this time with being separated from their loved ones and not being able to actually go and help them and just having to sit and wait and hope it gets better. Yeah, so I'm glad you went to the ER. I'm glad you're doing better. I wanted to ask and speak a little bit in regard to the conversation and speculation around the vaccine giving people COVID. Can you touch a little bit on this topic?
0: That's a good one. And well, the mRNA vaccine cannot possibly give one COVID infection. They do not contain the live virus and there is no attenuated or weakened virus there. It cannot make you sick with COVID mRNA is surrounded by a lipid wall so it could penetrate through your cell. It gets injected and your body actually simply translate the mRNA code to produce and make copies of the protein against the spike protein of the virus. Then it gets degraded and it goes away. It is possible that for me, for example, I got the vaccine seven days before I got ill. It is possible that when I got vaccinated, I already had the virus or shortly thereafter, and I was just asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, meaning before you get symptomatic. It takes about two to three weeks for the body to produce T and B cell after vaccination. So it is possible that a person may still be infected with COVID, that they may still be infected with COVID right after vaccination, where the neutralizing antibody are not sufficient yet. And then the T cell mediated response has not been activated yet. So the body will have a partial response to the first vaccine. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll take the second booster for the full response weeks, weeks after the second dose. So I would say you would need all that B and T cell response to fully protect you. And I believe the T cell lymphocytes or the T cell mediated response, like the killer cells, the helper cells, and the memory cells are the ones that are important in preventing severe disease and determines longer immunity.
1: Right. And we know that you got your first vaccine. Are you planning on getting your second one and if so why? Do you believe that you already have a natural immunity having contracted COVID?
0: Yeah, I think I I I think I have the natural immunity although because you you really don't get tested and antibody titers are only one part of the equation as I mentioned you have the T-cell mediated immunity. So would I take the second vaccine now that I have the advantage of the first vaccine and also the natural immunity? Yes and no. The CBC now recommends to healthcare workers for now to get the vaccine like one to three months after you had established out of the quarantine period. So I feel now that i should take the second the second vaccine so i plan to take it in 3 months but maybe in 3 months we will have more information and then the other question is is reinfection possible it's possible especially now with the the new variants and it depends upon how we respond to the new variants with the current vaccines that we know it is really not known currently how long the natural immunity lasts and how long the immunity from the vaccine lasts?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, ACAS, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.